This podcast is brought to you by Premiere, the UK's leading Christian media organisation. As we approach the end of our financial year, we want to remind you that podcasts like this are only possible due to the generosity of supporters like you. You could help reach millions of people throughout the year through shows just like this. Make your best gift today at premierchristianradio.plus. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron. Welcome to the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. Now, you might well think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin, and of course you would be right, but then again, so is everything else since the fall. And I think we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and sisters who operate in the world of politics. Today, we're going to be joined by Sir Simon Hughes. Simon had a distinguished career as an MP serving 32 years in Parliament, He's a former justice minister and deputy leader of the Liberal Democrats. We'll hear his memories from his time in Westminster and his reflections of living as a Christian in this mucky business. But before that, the 2024 US presidential election kicked off last week with a huge win for Donald Trump in the Iowa caucuses as he seeks the Republican Party's nomination. His selection as Republican candidate is starting to feel inevitable, especially now that Ron DeSantis, one of his main opponents, has withdrawn from the race and thrown his support behind Trump. A staggering 53% of those calling themselves white evangelical Christians said in an Iowa exit poll that they had voted for Trump. If this is repeated across the country, Donald Trump may well be re-elected to the presidency on the back of highly tribal faith-based endorsements. It is genuinely baffling to most British Christians that so many of our US counterparts can support a man of Trump's hardly Christ-like character and actions. And this time round, the prospect of his election threatens to destabilise the entire globe as he proposes to withdraw support from Ukraine and possibly even pull out from NATO. It is a source of comfort and encouragement to me that the UK is far less politically tribal than the US on religious lines. I've got many cross-party friendships with MPs who are Christians, people who we can share a faith with whilst disagreeing on politics. But the depths of US divisions have trampled down the middle ground of politics. We can see this in the UK to an extent following the lengthy Brexit disagreements, the Corbyn years and the current successful attempts by the Reform Party to wrench conservative immigration policies onto their territory. In America, the divisions are deeper and they are wider. There, politics appears to have turned into a question of salvation. Vote for whichever leader is most likely to save you from the threats you believe are battering at the door. Trump's team have capitalised on a fear held by many right-leaning white Christians that liberal, Islamist and Marxist forces are seeking to destroy society. They have used Make America Great Again to promote a cultural Christian identity that their supporters believe is under threat. It is based around saving America from a hostile world. And they are using highly religious, quasi-messianic language, such as the widely shared God Made Trump video, which paints him as God's hand-picked caretaker ruler to preserve American culture and, and I quote, a shepherd to mankind who won't ever leave them or forsake them. End quotes. Incredibly to us, this seems to be hitting the mark. One Trump supporter was quoted in the New York Times as saying, he is the only saviour I can see. 
Another stated that the election is part of a spiritual battle, with Trump expected to dish out, and I quote, retribution against all those who promoted evil in this country. Wow. Well, of course, many also oppose Trump's nomination. A national survey giving voters a Trump versus Biden option in 2024 shows that 76% of white evangelical Protestants support Trump, as well as more than half of white Catholics and more than half of white non-evangelical Protestants. By contrast, 79% of black Protestant voters support Biden, along with two-thirds of religiously unaffiliated and non-Christian religious voters. Now, I am certainly not suggesting that people of the Christian faith should only ever vote Democrat, nor am I suggesting that no Christian could ever vote for Trump. But I do fear that many white evangelicals are being deceived by Trump. In dismissing his character and actions as irrelevant, they often quote Jesus' words from Mark 12, 13 to 17, where the Pharisees tried to catch Jesus out by bringing him a Roman coin and asking whether they should pay taxes to Caesar. Jesus' reply was, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. These verses are used to argue that people should keep faith in a private sphere. By all means, show love, kindness and forgiveness in your personal life, but you can safely abandon any annoying Christian values in the political fight. In that context, it's argued it is fine to act with malice and anger, stoking division and culture war. Different rules apply and the end justifies the means. But I do not think Jesus meant that. He surely meant something far more radical which is equally disturbing and unpalatable to both the left and the right. You see, the coin that Jesus was presented with bore Caesar's image. And so Jesus shrugs and says that it should be given to Caesar. But Genesis 1 tells us that unlike the coin, humans bear God's image. Jesus is saying here that you belong and should give yourself entirely to God. Christians are called to apply and live out Christ's teaching in every part of our lives. You must not then fit your faith to conveniently suit your politics, but you must instead humbly tailor your politics to be faithful to the one whose image you bear. So let's be praying for these key US elections and for Christians to use their votes wisely and faithfully. And let's also pray for those of no faith not to be put off Christianity or off Christ by the willingness of so many to treat Trump as the new messiah. In the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, the devil attempts to lure a new believer away from the faith by making him focus on the weirdness of some Christians, rather than on the wonder of the real Jesus. Let's pray that non-Christians are not put off from investigating Jesus' direct appeal to them, which can be found perhaps most clearly in John 3.16. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Well, let's go to our guest this morning, the former Liberal Democrat MP, former Deputy Leader, former Justice Minister, uh, Sir Simon Hughes, currently Chancellor of South Bank University and and a good personal friend. When did we first meet, Simon? Um, you've asked me this before. It was clearly <laughs> long before your wedding because I came to your wedding. So, <laughs> so I guess when you were a student at uh, at Newcastle. It was much so. I, I, obviously, I, it was a much bigger deal to me than it was to you, Simon. And <laughs> I reckon I was nineteen, and I think I'd just been elected to the NUS National Executive, and you were our education spokesperson. And my my first ever mention in Hansard was that you put down an early day motion uh, to celebrate the fact that the Lib Dems had surprisingly won an election. <laughs> so there yeah. you are. 
<laughs> no, I remember. I remember you being that president. That was very good. Um, I don't remember putting the name down the hand side, but we've had um, long engagement over many issues over many years, for which I'm very grateful to. Yes, yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure a, a mutual friend of ours probably drafted the EDM. <laughs> <laughs> that may be true. But it is lovely to have you on the show, um, and we're, we're so grateful um, to have you here. And obviously, somebody who's been known through, well, the 32 years you spent in Parliament, um, four decades, I would say, being one of the best-known Christians in politics. So let me ask you a question that I'm afraid I don't think I've ever asked you before, which is, how did you become a Christian? Uh, the answer is it was gradually. I was born into a uh, Christian family. My parents went to church. I was baptised in the north of England, northwest of England, uh, before I remember it, um, uh, as six weeks old, um, and then later made specific decisions that confirmed that. So uh, I was confirmed into the Church in Wales, and I remember being clear that's what I wanted to do. I was um, only 11, I think, then, perhaps a bit older than that. Um, and then uh, when I was in my 20s, um, and I was in London, and I came to London for the first time uh, just after university, uh, I remember going to a come-together at the Albert Hall uh, and coming by, or staying in Lee Abbey International Students uh, oh. Hostel in London uh, and with Christian friends there. And I remember uh, confirming my commitment. So it was a gradual process. And unlike most people, I think, mm -hmm. it's never wavered. So for which I'm just amazed and grateful that, that the faith has stayed through... Uh, family death, through difficulties, through all sorts of things. Um, uh, so the faith has stayed there. Sometimes it's been more on fire than on other, at other times, but uh, I'm really grateful that I have a secure and solid faith. And my family, I have a, um, a younger brother who's very uh, devout in his faith, um, and we've supported each other. Parents were supportive. So I've been very grateful for that and, and, and lots of wonderful other supporters. I have a prayer group, which has met every month since I was first elected to support me and continues to do so. And um, we now do mutual support. And that's just wonderful. That is fantastic. And it leads me really, I guess, to take us back to the point where you were elected in, in a tumultuous by-election in, uh, in 1983, at the height of the Thatcher era. Uh, what, what was it like entering Parliament in those circumstances? Well, it was all... Um, a bit of a surprise in the sense that um, it was it was providential again, I have to say, and I'm not trying to be sort of pompous or grand about that. Um, <clears throat> the first time I came to Southwark uh, in 77, I became involved in the local community. I didn't come here with the intention of being the MP, nothing like it. I was a young barrister, uh, worked voluntarily in a Christian youth club, and I lived in the Christian youth club premises um, uh, and did that spare time eventually was persuaded to stand for the greater london council as it then was we did well we put our vote up uh, then for the local council we did well we put our vote up um was there was a selection for the local candidate i lost by one vote uh, to the incumbent who was an old man who wanted to stand again but a year later the alliance between liberals and sdp was formed um, and boundaries changed, and the local party had the chance to decide whether they wanted to select again. Uh, by, I think, a majority of one vote on the local executive, they decided they did. Uh, and so there was a second selection, um, and 
this sounds a bit long, but but it's it will come to a conclusion. It's worth saying because it was so providential. Second selection, which I won, that was in September '82. Um, I had a law case which was going to occupy me in court until the following July, due to start on the first of November, and the weekend before, on the Friday, the case settled, and on the Monday, the MP stood down. Bob Mellish stood down. Mm. Had the court case not settled, I wouldn't have been free to be the candidate. Um, by the end of the Monday, the Tory candidate has stood down because he was too busy at work. And for four months, Labour couldn't choose a candidate because they were having internal turmoil. So I had a sort of four-month run as the candidate, but with no work to do because my <laughs> case has settled. Um, and we'd been around working in the constituency for three years. So wow. it was um, it was providential. Um, and, and then the result was exceptional and I hadn't expected to win. Mm. Uh, I just trusted. I didn't really think about whether I would win or not win. I pulled all the stops out and um, uh, in the end did. It wasn't the most happy of campaigns in many ways for, mm. for, for reasons people know. Uh, but the affirmation, I hope, was that we held the seat for the following seven elections or whatever the number was. A mucky business with Tim Farron. We're joined by former Liberal Democrat MP Sir Simon Hughes. Um, over the 32 years you spent in Parliament under many prime ministers, I was going to say, I think it was under five prime ministers, <laughs> that sounded like a really grand thing. But of course, these days, five prime ministers is about 18 months worth, isn't it? <laughs> over your time, people like Mrs Thatcher and David Cameron and Tony Blair actually did the job for quite a while. Um, so a, a real series of eras, shall we say, um, that you were in politics and in Parliament. As a Christian, how do you think um, politics has changed or Parliament has changed so far as Christians are concerned during that time? Has it been better, worse, different? That's a good and interesting question. Um, the first change isn't actually anything to do with Christians. The first change is that over that period, we've moved to a parliament with far more women in parliament and a far more diverse parliament. And that's been a good thing in itself. So the context has been less macho, less stereotypical male. Uh, and, and it was, you know, in the early days, it was a pretty grim place in many ways. I mean, the, the paradox is in the early days, there were many great figures of British politics who people had heard of and great speakers whether Michael Foote or um, uh, Michael Heseltine, or, I mean, you know, great performers, uh, and I sense there aren't as many of those these days. In terms of uh, Christians in Parliament, I would say that uh, there has been a continuous, strong Christian core to Parliament. So uh, the, the Christian Fellowship has met, um, there have been prayer groups which have met, um, there have been prayer breakfasts. That's remained there all the time irrespective of the numbers and 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 it we've never done a, a sort of full head count who are the christians in parliament and uh i mean that would be unfair and unreasonable to do so the christian uh faith has remained um we've continuous and as we have an established church to have start every day with prayers which is a reminder and for those who are of faith an opportunity to come together in a few minutes prayer and reflection um i think probably uh, people of faith are now more easily differentiated than they used to be. The sort of the norm was that most people had a residual or some Christian faith back in the day. Now there are people of other faiths, more obviously, and no faith, and more willing to say that. But 
I'm encouraged by the fact that that faith has remained very strong amongst enough people for it to make a difference, um, and has often had to appear in challenging debates when we've been debating the conscience issues, debating uh, abortion, debating the the big personal issues of the day. People of faith have obviously uh, taken their position on those issues too, and that goes across parties, as you well know. Mm. Um, it's never been a prerogative of, of any party. And mercifully, there are people of strong faith in both houses of parliament, in both parties, who continue to hold firm to the faith and to seek to live that out in parliament. And um, also, the, I mean, in, in Downing Street, interestingly, um, Margaret Thatcher had her faith. I wasn't a fan, but she, she had her, uh, her faith. John Major, probably less so, though I think he, in many ways, was underrated as a prime minister. Uh, Tony Blair had his faith. Uh, again, he tried not to, well, Alistair Campbell tried not to to um, uh, have it as the promotional uh, doctrine. Uh, Gordon Brown had a, a strong uh, core faith. Um, uh, so we, 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 we had a, a whole series of people who were informed by faith. Uh, Rishi Sunak has a faith. It's a different faith at the moment. Um, so we should never discount the the mm. role of faith close to leadership and in leadership mm. and the role of the church in supporting those people. I and mean, it's been really good that the church has tried to support people in leadership of all parties and, and in government of all parties. Yeah. Now, look, it's not a secret. Maybe it, maybe it is. Uh, I don't know. But it's not to you and me. That I, in my time as a member of parliament, have, have in many ways sought to model what you did um, to serve those communities in Southwark and Bermondsey over a third of a century in a seat which was just innately, solidly Labour, one of the safest Labour seats in the country at the point that you won it. You could only have done that by basically loving the place to death. <laughs> and it loved you back. And you were immersed in those communities. You won eight times, almost always against the national trend. Um, and yet, obviously, in 2015, along with 90% of our colleagues, Liberal Democrat colleagues, you you were not re-elected. And I hate to ask you almost, but what was that like? Because it wasn't just losing your job for you, was it? It was it was an encompassing identity. And so how did you respond to that? Yes, Um it was. It wasn't just a loss by one or two votes. We we won the best ever result in 2010. We got a majority of over 10,000, mm. and then we lost by 4,000 in 2015. Mm. Um, we hadn't expected to lose by a lot. We weren't sure we would lose. We thought we might just hang on. Mm. So, firstly, it came as a shock in that sense. Um, it, and only at midnight or one in the morning was it clear we weren't going to win. Mm. Uh, and uh, the family got together. And we prepared um, for the result. The result was there. We, I was allowed to say something. Um, I was clear that liberalism and what I tried to do had been really important for the constituency, so tried to rally the troops. Mm. Some of the strongest, toughest of my campaign team were the ones who most immediately went to pieces. Some of the sort of tough northern lads who were helping were in yeah. tears. Um, I was for probably six weeks... Um, angry, disappointed, uh, at a loss. Mm. But I resolved pretty well immediately, I mean, almost within days, that I would not decide for nearly six months as to what I was going to do next. Mm. Uh, you get six months redundancy pay, uh, as uh, uh, this is the view as I know, um, when you're an MP. So I decided I would use that to think about where to go next. And 
I came to the conclusion over that period pretty soon that um, you must move forward in life. This this was a closing of a door. I'd had a huge privilege, unexpected privilege, to be the MP, to end up being a senior pers- person in a British political party, to be a minister in a government. Um, extraordinary privilege mm-hmm. uh, in a constituency absolutely I loved and worked for 80 hours a week for all that time. Um, but you have to move on. And although I still live here and I still feel I love the place uh, and I have many, many friends and so on, um, I've I've given up the sort of territory of responsibility for it, which I felt, you know, every moment of every day mm-hmm. um, and have gone on to other things and uh, now do a job at the university, which means I can't be involved in active and party politics. I stood again in 2017 because uh, we hadn't got around to selecting new candidate and lost again. From background, I'm allowed to support colleagues, so I support colleagues who are in the front line now. Um, but no, I moved on. And I think I think God is good and provided all sorts of opportunities. And although in my mind I had intended to serve for another five years, uh, the electorate uh, had another plan, uh, and uh, God has worked with that plan and given me opportunities I would never have had. Uh, so look forward is my view. Always, always look ahead. Never look back. Learn from the mistakes of the past, but but always look forward. And I'm optimistic and positive, and and really pleased for the opportunities I've had since then. I watch. I don't miss not being in Parliament. I have to tell you, I don't. I live very near. I can see if I leant out of the window, I could see. Uh, Big Ben from here or Elizabeth Tower from here um, I almost never go back into the building uh, very rarely I'm not I don't feel that I have to be there um, mm. keep in touch with some friends uh, not huge numbers of them but no you have to move on and I just pray for the government of today and the governments we're going to have and the people who are going to be there but um, I did 32 years I was asked if I wanted to go to the House of Lords I said no thank you A I don't believe in unelected lawmakers and B, I didn't want to go back into the building to do the same sort of thing for another 32 years. <laughs> um, having, you know, having been there for a third of my life or half of my life. So uh, well, Simon, pos- positive about the future. That is brilliant. And I think in many ways for, as, as we bring this to a close, sadly, the for, for so many of us, uh, whatever it is that we're doing today um, in politics, uh, in every other part of life, it's a reminder that something can be so important to us, it becomes our identity. And yet, as Christians, our identity is in Christ, and that's our ultimate identity, and that's a thing that cannot be taken from us. Uh, no no electorate, <laughs> no, no. Uh, bad opinion poll, none of those things can affect that. Um, so thank and the you. lovely and consoling thing is that, yes. because I still live in, in the patch, there are still people regularly, almost every week, who come up and say nice things and and... And I've been able to help them with their housing or their immigration or whatever it might be. Yeah. And that's an encouragement. And that sort of affirms that it was worth doing, as well as you know, actual um, physical things on the ground, like new tube stations, which might not have been there, if I were, all those sorts of stuff. So yeah. so wow. there, there are confirmations that yeah. it was a good thing to do. Um, but if you, um, if, you, if you build a model, as you did... Yeah. There are people in Kendall who benefit because I copied you. So oh, very good. Well, thank <laughs> you. That's very what, generous. What, what a what a blessing to have you with us. Um, I feel there's a there's another interview in this, so we'll perhaps have you back on again soon. But um, have a wonderful day, and thank you so much. Thank you for what you do, and keep up the good work. Each week, we give you the opportunity for you to ask any question you'd like about this mucky business of politics. 
It may be how an aspect of this world impacts us Christians who work within it, or maybe there's a particular issue that you're struggling to make sense of. Well, I'd, I'd love to hear from you and to an attempt an answer, so please drop me an email to farron at premier.org.uk. Well, George has been in touch and he emailed me on the issue of illegal migrants crossing the channel. He's questioned the motives of those who travel here and claims too many are looking for something for nothing from a country that owes them nothing. He quotes Proverbs saying that an open rebuke is better than secret love and that we should call out illegal migration rather than defending those who attempt to get here. It was a great question and I really appreciate the challenge. It's important as Christians that we do feel free to rebuke one another when we think that is required. I'll just push back a little bit there, George. Uh, people crossing the channel, it's not illegal immigration. If you are claiming uh, refugee status anywhere, you have a right under international law to do that. And the question is, so, uh, George talks about the motives of those who travel here and the honest answer that neither George nor I know the motives of people who travel here by irregular routes to claim asylum. Um, and neither do we know the motives or the moral character or anything at all about that guy who was beaten, stripped naked and left for dead on the Jericho Road. And the Samaritan helped him without doing a Q&A beforehand. Now, I don't want to be uh, taking a risk of extrapolating from that most famous of parables and saying this is definitely what it says. But I think we are drawn to treat those in need uh, unquestioningly. And the point is, those people who cross the channel to get here, and by the way, I, I would want to do everything I can to stop people making the dangerous journeys across the channel and feeding that illegal trade, the individuals themselves though are not acting illegally the best practical answer i can give you is that if the uk government processed people who claimed asylum here we established then on the basis of international law and our own law are they or are they not a refugee if they're not a refugee if they are merely an economic migrant which is no sin by the way to be an economic migrant but if they are then there's a then there's a process to apply to come here to work through a visa and you should go through that so those people should be returned and those people who are refugees, we should accept and look after. And my problem with the government is that they're not assessing people. And so we don't know whether these people are genuine refugees or not. What we do know is that minority of people the government does assess, roughly three quarters are genuine refugees. We're called to love the stranger and not to ask questions about how they got there, though. And that's my conclusion. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Let's end our time together, as we always do, in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you hold the world in your hands, the whole universe in your hands, and, uh, Lord, you, you bring to power and you remove from power kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers and uh, lord we just lift up to you the people of america as they begin the process of choosing their presidential candidates um and lord you know your will be done we pray for that um but we pray that the gospel will be held out uh, truthfully um and attractively to the american people and to the world we pray that you'd raise up people who are wise and godly uh, we praise pray more widely for the impact on America, on the rest of the world. Um, we pray in particular for Ukraine. Uh, Lord, in, insofar as we see it, we see an aggressor, a bully, invading a country has no right to invade. And we pray for justice. We pray for peace, but we pray for justice too. We just pray that you'd intervene. Pray in both America and in Ukraine and in Russia, 
you would strengthen your people. You would keep them faithful and uh, help them to be huge witnesses to the truth of Jesus Christ, knowing that salvation is not found in our guy winning the presidency or our country winning a war. It is found in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. May we remember that and may we hold that out clearly to all those around us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a real blessing that you joined us for this week's show, and I'm really, really grateful. Don't forget that you can catch up on past episodes, which feature interviews with party leaders, former government ministers, and MPs from all the major parties. Just search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider, or head to premier.plus forward slash A Mucky Business. We'll see you soon.